Hello and welcome back to In Good Company. It's been a while since you guys have heard from me, 2019 to be precise, and like everyone else, I had a pretty strange and intense 2020. Part of that was because I was writing a book, We Need to Talk About Money, which comes out in July, in which you can pre-order now via Amazon or Waterstones, and I've put the link in my show notes. Two books, actually, how can I forget? I also wrote Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, which is an essay about racism and allyship, and that came out in November of last year. And if you'll forgive the brag, it was selected as one of The Guardian's Books of the Year for 2020. And then, like everyone else... I've been grappling with the fallout from the pandemic, which presented a few challenges for me, though I feel pretty fortunate in having come through it pretty intact, and I hope that that is the case for you as well. I also made a few career changes. I decided to call time on Women Who at the end of last year, which was a slightly bittersweet decision, but I think it was the right one for me as my career moves in a slightly different direction. That also means that the direction of this podcast is going to be changing slightly, to be less you know heavily careers focused as it has been in previous series i really want to broaden things out more to focus on all areas of culture from feminism and race to media and books though obviously work will still be a pretty central theme of the show because it's just one of those facets of life that i think about more than pretty much anything else but enough preamble let me introduce today's guest penny martin who is editor-in-chief of the award-winning women's magazine the gentlewoman which has long been one of my favourite publications, and so I'm absolutely thrilled to have her on the show. The Gentlewoman is widely recognised as the definitive style title for discerning women, and has set a new standard in women's magazines with its high-quality writing and fashion photography, which is both intelligent and entertaining, and focuses as much on women's ideas and accomplishments as how they dress, which is something that I really love about it. As the Gentlewoman's founding editor, Penny is responsible for the magazine's exacting editorial standards and refined taste that have made the magazine so iconic. Before being tapped by the publishers of Fantastic Man to head up the Gentlewoman back in 2010, Penny was previously a curator at the National Museum of Photography, Film and Television and chair of fashion imagery at University of the Arts London. She also contributes to numerous international publications and consults for several brands, including the likes of New Mew and Nike, and as a trustee for the National Trust for Scotland. Before I jump into that conversation, though, a quick message from our sponsor this week. This episode of In Good Company is sponsored by Aurelia Skincare, and more specifically, their CBD Super Serum, which contains pure crystallised CBD isolate. Not sure what crystallised CBD isolate is? Well, I'll tell you. It's basically the more sophisticated and far superior version of CBD oil and essentially means that you get more exact and more effective quantities of CBD without any of the unwanted impurities that sometimes crop up in CBD oil. Aurelia's CBD Super Serum is a really lightweight and fast absorbing, highly concentrated formula that's suspended in hyaluronic acid, which essentially floods the skin with hydration while also helping moderate your sebum production and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. Plus, it's got really powerful anti-inflammatory benefits. What's not to love? It's super easy to incorporate into your regular skincare regime. You can just mix a couple of drops in with your favourite moisturiser or serum or facial oil, or you can also use it on its own for a more intense treatment. To get 20% of all Aurelia skincare products, including their CBD Super Serum, head to www.aureliaskincare.com and use the code IGC20 at checkout. That's www.aureliaskincare.com. Thank you very much to Aurelia Skincare. And now onto my conversation with Penny. 
Hello, Penny. Thank you so much for joining me on In Good Company. As you know, you are a guest that I wanted to get on the show for a while. So I am delighted to be kicking off the new season with you as our first guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I am going to dive straight into it by asking you a little bit about who The Gentlewoman is. Obviously, I've been a huge fan of this magazine for many years, and I've always felt like it epitomises the sort of women that I want to be or that I aspire to be. And I know when talking to other friends who are fans of the magazine, that is how they feel as well. But I'm really curious. I'd love to understand who you are putting the magazine together and who you are writing for. Who is the audience you have in mind? Well, I think you are the gentlewoman, aren't you? Because certainly in the last five years, the sort of second half of making the magazine, the audience has become much bigger part of the offering and has fed back into the making of the magazine. It's a really proud moment when we're able to feature somebody who has been a prominent member of the Gentlewoman Club, that is the International Society of Women Readers, who come to all our different internationally staged events. Having you in the current issue is a great example of that circular system, which I can't honestly say was the plan from the start, although it maybe was a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy in having me as an editor, because... I came from a museum background. I mean, a long time ago, I haven't worked in museums for years, but that's the process, isn't it? You're underground for two years researching some kind of abstruse exhibition and then you come up for air and you do your conference and your walking tour and your crafts night and whatever else it is. I suppose now you do a podcast and you get to meet all the people that consume your product and that sort of informs what worked and what didn't and helps you programme the next thing. And that's become the culture of the magazine. If you went back to the start, if you'd been interviewing me in 2010 and you'd asked me one of those questions, who is the gentlewoman? At that point, it's the equivalent of putting together your deck, isn't it, for your advertising? You're saying, well, she's 25 to 35 and she's international and that's a kind of business plan, isn't it? to some extent, although you can't say that we were terribly corporate or sophisticated in that way, really. When we started out, we just had a sense of what the magazine world lacked for readers like us. So really, the plan was to try and create a product that widened the idea of who the woman was that was featured in the magazine. It's a sort of rather broad answer, isn't it? But I think that answers your question in that the gentlewoman is lots of things, in terms of an editorial product in the early days, I suppose we were trying to commission material that we felt spoke to us in that sense that we were walking into news agents and seeing this sea of celebrity magazines that were anything but what we wanted to read. So we felt pretty confident that we knew how to not commission that. And that was actually, I suppose, the editorial plan. And then, you know, in terms of a commissioning agenda, it was just about widening the proposition. You know, it wasn't just those celebrities and reality TV stars, but it was also older women and younger women and people from a different economic background and different ethnicity. And just to try and restore some of the values that I admired, we admired as a group making magazines in the publications that we read when we were younger and our mothers read. And just we knew that they were more diverse in the traditional sense of the word that you just get something that was very unexpected whereas I think by the time 2010 when we started the magazine if you walked into that news agent you knew it was going to be the same five people on all of those covers. Definitely and I feel like something that has always really stood out about the gentleman right from the start as it's evolved is that the focus of the articles and the coverage and the interviews is very much on the individuals themselves and the individual women and their ideas 
and not just on how they look or even primarily on how they look, which I feel like is a real departure from a lot of the women's media landscape. Although I think that is changing now slightly, I think largely thanks to the gentlewoman, I think a lot of magazines and newer platforms have kind of followed in your footsteps. There are always a lot of long form pieces in the magazine, which I find quite interesting. And it's definitely a departure from most women's magazines. Was that always something that you intended to do? Well, we didn't invent that. That did exist in other independently produced personal style influenced periodicals, you know, self-service and details and those kinds of magazines. And of course, Fantastic Man was the precedent for the gentlewoman. And they had mapped out a lot of that taxonomy of magazine publishing, the personality-centred long-form versus short detailed pieces in terms of the actual structure of the magazine. But I think the spirit was really about personal style rather than the industry. And launching in 2010, it was really at the time where there was about to be a big shift in fashion. But, you know, if you think about what the previous 10 years had represented, it was very industry-led. A lot of fashion photography and journalism was starting to turn into lookbook lore where, you know, it was very dictated just fashion was feeling much more constrained so in fact it was exciting to be pursuing the opposite which was about you know bringing together a constellation very broad constellation by fashion standards of women and then thinking about their thoughts and their tastes and their individual quirks and expertise you know so you're right in the first few issues it was very long form piece so 3000 word piece versus you know short Q&A and that was the sort of binary <laughs> experience until we sort of worked out well this is still quite a lot of homework for the reader and started to bring in much more smaller detailed pieces that were a bit you know we call them modern details but very short pieces on peculiarities the sorts of things you'd pick up at the dinner table your favorite girlfriend or your wannabe girlfriend does she wear cufflinks oh she does you know she only orders a dessert and a starter or oh you order a black napkin just those kind of little specificities that seem sophisticated in another that personally I find very attractive in other people and I want to talk to them you know a lot of my ideas come out of those kinds of conversations so I think that's sort of what started to amp up the personality of the magazine. But, you know, I can't say we invented those genres, but I think we perhaps had uncommon freedom to indulge them. Mm. You used the word peculiarities there, which I find really interesting because I think one of the things I really enjoy about getting my hands on a new issue is knowing that I'm going to be confronted by the unexpected. So as you said earlier, it's not just the same faces, the same women. It very often is, I would say, you know, 75% of the women that I read about in the magazine often I've never heard of before and this might just be because I'm you know not very culturally attuned but I often feel like the choices are surprising in a good way and I I really want to understand how each issue comes together I'd love to kind of talk through the editorial process of putting together an issue like how does that start where do you begin as a team when you're brainstorming about who you're going to feature as an interviewee, how you choose a cover subject. Could you just kind of talk me through where the ideas come from? Well, you asked me at a really good time because we're about to start planning issue 24 because issue 23 is just being bound and is about to come out this month. I mean, now that we're a bit more longer in the tooth, there's a sort of long list of things that we couldn't quite manage last time hanging over and we'll probably get together and sort of look at those and sort of think, oh, you know, 
Does that feel timely? Who else did that? Are there two of those stories next to each other, etc.? So we'll kind of edit that down to barely anything, probably. Although I saw a list the other day and it actually looked quite full. I thought, great. But, you know, the real work is making sure you secure a cover. And, you know, anybody that's known me for the last 10 years is used to sort of seeing me between issues, purple in the face and kind of anxious because the cover's just fallen through. You know, that is much harder than anybody would ever believe to secure just because of the kind of access we're asking for and the exclusivity and because, you know, some women in certain fields are much more used to being pursued for an interview than others. So there's sometimes work to do and can convincing serious women to be even included in a women's magazine for understandable reasons. That meeting happens kind of just about every week. And then there's sort of discussion on people that we're pursuing. But it's kind of a bit like putting, I mean, I know I say this often, and it maybe sounds a bit glib, but it genuinely is a bit like putting together a party or a sort of dinner list where you want people of different personalities that are going to fulfil different functions. When there's so few stories, big stories, you know, there's like four or five long profiles or interview based pieces. And then there's three or four much smaller ones and then there's only other bits and pieces that I was talking about and sort of marginalia sometimes. When there's only really four big stories you you obviously can't have any replication between them whatsoever so you're trying to create a sort of very broad offering. You want timely stories but not necessarily always hung on a launch necessarily. Sometimes it's great to have somebody that isn't necessarily trying to hawk a new project but is just fabulous so you want to swing back and forth between super super famous and then sometimes complete surprises as you suggest and you know different people know different fields but you're always trying to think okay you know we've done sports so probably wouldn't put two actors one after the other you don't want two people of the same age it's just as you say always trying to be a bit unexpected but in early days I think we were probably guilty of (laughs) kind of overthinking it and we kind of ruled out a lot of people that we felt were expected of us you know of a certain group probably I guess women from different independent fields of my age group and then actually it's brilliant when you do do them sometimes but I think it was necessary in the first few issues to set out our stall with quite an extreme and precise offering so that you could start introducing what become surprises which are the people were surprised when we did Beyonce some people didn't even like that we did Beyonce because they felt that you know we were the magazine that did the thing that nobody else would do etc but I think you can't keep pursuing that exclusively you've got to mix it all together then you get your great party don't you you get the dancer and the singer and the exhibitionist and the introvert and the person you've never met before and the one that you know the usual suspect you need all them together to make a really good night out don't you (laughs) I agree no and I think the way you approach it editorially means that I find that the issues don't really date so I you know have like a bit of an archive and I can go back and read them I think I was researching someone recently Tavi Gevinson and ah yes yeah Uh, Sophie Elmhurst did a great piece on her five issues ago or so is that in the Sophia Coppola issue I think it is yes it is and it was just really interesting first of all it was kind of like a bit of a snapshot of where she was at that point in time but it also just felt very timeless. And I think the way the interviews and the choices are tends to be, and also you guys tend to be really kind of ahead of the curve in that sense. So, you know, you'll have Phoebe Waller-Bridge and then all of a sudden she, you know, she was already a name when she was in the magazine, but now she's just this kind of huge star and a huge name. And I think it's nice to feel like it's a bit of an archive of interesting women 
Well, obviously, delighted to hear you say that and notice that because the way that the longer pieces are pitched are certainly so that they do float in time. We noticed that almost from the start. A few issues after I interviewed Phoebe Philo for the first issue, people would still be referring to it as if it was a current document. And of course, it was like a couple of years old. I was thinking, gosh, this is peculiar, the way people still want to talk to you about a piece that's gone. So now when we're working with writers, I think it's a bit of a burden for them, but it needs to be all singing, all dancing, and sort of to some extent, well, as far as we can make it, definitive, whilst also having that timely hook. To be frank with you, sometimes I think we can be too far ahead. What ends up happening is, yes, indeed, you kind of go with somebody that you just know is going to be massive and that is really important. But also, you know that if you did them in three issues time, you would be riding the wave of their success. And actually, it might be (laughs) more valuable to you as a cover. However, then you're, of course, competing with other people, then a few other long-form pieces have already been written. So, you know, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Whether to really go with somebody early on and perhaps it's not the right time for them to get the cover, but this is the equivalent of an editorial discussion. I might well be sitting here with my colleagues going, right, should we do it now or should we hold off? And, you know, that's the sort of excitement of it. I think it's really interesting because I remember I've listened to an interview with Kirsty Young when she was talking about Desert Island Discs and how they decide who they have on the show. And she said something really interesting, which is that they tend to not feature people on the show when they're kind of in the white hot heat of their fame. And they tend to go to them a few years after, even maybe even decades after when they have a bit of perspective. And obviously, again, there's Island Discs, you know, tends to get these really big names. And who would ever turn them down? That's the thing. They probably know they pick up the phone and the people are over there in a cabin 40 minutes flat, you know, with their eight records or whatever it is. It's such chance that you can ever get anybody at any time that you kind of want to take your opportunity when you're independent publishing. I mean, who knows what will happen to any of these magazines going forward. So you sort of think, oh, you know, you want to make hay while the sun shines a bit. It's a very interesting question. Of course, we did Kirsty in the magazine. Was it issue 10, I think, maybe? She gave a great interview to Lauren Collins. That was a kind of high point. And, you know, she's one of the women as a Scottish girl. She was one of the people I saw on lunchtime TV <laughs> news. She was a bit of an icon for me, you know, the Kirsty walks of this world and, and that kind of idea about a passport into something different. So, yeah, that was a great moment for me. I'm curious, actually, as to how you commission writers and and where you turn to to look for people to write for the magazine, whether it's interviewing or or the shorter pieces. I definitely know that amongst my journalist friends, the gentlewoman is seen as, you know, a bit of an elusive get and people don't really know whether to pitch it or whether they just kind of wait to get like a tap on the shoulder. So (laughs) what are you looking for? No, honestly, that's the case. And so I'm curious if you kind of lift the veil slightly so that you know people understand what are you looking for? There's no there's no Oz behind that veil, I'll tell you. Um well, I mean some of the answer is in the question in that, you know, there's eight, ten pieces twice a year, and we've been working with a stable of writers from the very beginning. Quite honestly, we're not like a newspaper where we're sort of like a showcase for many, many writers coming through the doors every day. We were, but it's actually a very sort of specific offering. We try to make it look like a very high quality publication, as if we had staffs of thousands, but I think we've got like three or four full-time members of staff. Hence, we try to maintain a decent word rate as far as we can, 
but you know we're an independent publication so the budgets are tiny so a lot of it needs to get written in-house so the, the honest answer is there's not that much opportunity for commissioning beyond you know we trying to always look for different writers that are specific to the women that we were commissioning but I don't get to work with new writers all the time and there's probably one or two new ones each issue but it is, it's not the same as a news desk where you know you'd be seeing writers portfolios every day. I know speaking for myself and for a lot of other women we look to the gentlewoman in order to understand the cultural zeitgeist and I would love to understand and to know, almost to kind of get the scoop, where do you turn to? Like, which creative and cultural outlets and people do you tend to read and watch and follow and visit in order to keep abreast with what's happening in culture? Well, it's a very interesting question because a lot of long-form writing I probably read through social media, I suppose. And then, you know, I obviously read New York Times and New Yorker and read quite a lot of fiction and... I watch loads of television, loads. And what are your favourite shows? What are you watching at the moment? Well, the masterpiece that is Mad Men, I probably watch about three times a year. Do you? I love Mad Men. <laughs> it's just, that is another kind of very timeless show. And I find that every time I rewatch it, I get something different out of it. So I watched it again in the first lockdown. I hadn't watched it for a couple of years. And I was struck this time around, right from the very beginning, because you kind of know what Betty's storyline and and what her trajectory ends up being, I was struck by how tragic her entire character arc was. So Betty Friedan. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it was just, and I don't think I'd realised that maybe the, because I didn't know what was happening, you know, you're watching it as you go. But I think to watch it with the knowledge of what happens to each of the characters at the end, I just found her storyline just really tragic right from the start. When I first saw it, I didn't really like it. Judging it by the styling, and I found it over-styled and didn't really take to it. And I thought that the series was all about the men. And actually, it wasn't until I went back to it like you the second time that I realised it's actually a story about women and the kind of consequences of being slightly an early adopter and not really getting the return on the sacrifice. (laughs) I also think that episode when Don comes back with Megan married and Peggy and Joan are in their office drinking and like just totally incredulous that it would have just been so much easier had they married him. You know, brings me to tears every time. I feel a wee bit tearful now. But I mean, all I'm trying to say is that it's not like I have some kind of wild library that I'm getting all my ideas from. I probably see exactly the same media as you do. But what I would say is I try not to look at that too much for ideas because I know that's where everybody else is going. So I would say that if you're trying to ask where things, you know, if we're sitting at our editorial meeting next week, it's more likely to come out of a conversation. It'll be like, have you noticed that, you know, we'd be more likely to be the kind of start of an idea with my colleagues than, hey, I saw in New York Times this woman and we must get her. Because, you know, that's what's happening in every other editor. I think probably our readers looking for something a little bit more worked and a bit more sort of specific. So, yeah, that woman in the New York Times that's maybe got this interesting book out, we'll be thinking about. If it's about surveillance capitalism, then have you noticed that your friends use a piece of software that limits dot, dot, dot? OK, how would we turn that into a small piece about it? would be about the manners of it. Do you understand what I mean? It, you're needing that sort of second layer on an idea for a biannual when you've only got a magazine that comes out once every six months and you hear from readers how often they read that one publication it needs to warrant a sort of return read and stand up the second time so you kind of need to have got to the second base with the idea you know 
Oh, that sounds a bit grand. I mean, I'm sure we don't always achieve that, but that's why we have editorial meetings every week for six months until we get the magazine made, which seems a bit of a preposterous expense of time. But I think quite often when we start working on our autumn winter issue in March, half the stuff that we think is going to be brilliant in March has gone off the list by June. Because you're just like, oh, so-and-so did that, or mm, yeah, it's a bit of a thin idea, or it's just not evolved enough. And I understand that because I think also by being a biannual, you say you only come out once every six months. I think in some ways you don't have the luxury of being as timely as a monthly or even weekly magazine. You do have to have subjects and articles that stand the test of time, not just you know two or three years down the line. But yeah, if you're planning something in March, you have to know that by the time this issue comes out, in October it's still going to feel fresh and it won't have been overdone that must be your nightmare and hence to come back to your idea quite often when I'm talking to writers that are pitching and things like that I understand why they think so-and-so is so of the moment but you're like yeah but in September when we've come out of lockdown (laughs) hopefully (laughs) people might not want to think about the home anymore you're always having to anticipate and the lead time is so wild that it excludes certain subjects anyway you know when we're talking to politicians it's always very difficult for them to think things change so quickly for them that they daren't allow themselves to speak sort of three thousand words worth that could they'll be hostage to fortune two months once we've actually finally got the thing printed (laughs) so you know sometimes it's circumstantial what we can't have in the magazine as much as what we can A quick word from our episode sponsor, Aurelia Skincare. I already mentioned that their CBD Super Serum has powerful anti-inflammatory benefits, helps reduce the appearance of wrinkles, and keeps your skin super hydrated. But did you know that it's also odourless, which means it doesn't have the usual scent you sometimes find in CBD products, which is great if you're sensitive to strong smells or just don't love the smell of CBD in general. The reviews for this product are also all raves, to be honest. An example of one that caught my eye on their website is from someone who says that their acne breakouts have basically disappeared and their skin has cleared up immensely since they started using it. Sounds good to me. Do be sure to check out at www.aureliaskincare.com and use the code IDC20 at checkout for 20% off all their products. And now, back to Penny. I'm curious, actually, because it's really clear that you and, and the entire team approach what you feature from a point of view of real kind of integrity and, and put a lot of thought and are very thoughtful about it. I'm really curious as to how you, both as an editor and also as a team, navigate your position at the intersection of two industries that I think can often work against women's interests. So by that, I mean women's media in general, which overall, you know, I've always kind of grown up consuming women's media, but there are definitely areas of it and tropes within it that are problematic and I don't think work in women's best interests and also the fashion industry as well. we'll see what they are before I, so I know what I'm walking into. What do you mean? Well, just in terms of the portrayal of women, I think, and especially when it comes to kind of beauty standards and just casual misogyny, I think now is a really interesting moment because ever since that Britney documentary came out, I think a lot of people have been thinking about the ways in which women's media and all media in general, but also women's media, I think tends to be a bit more insidious and maligning women. I think it's very much appearance driven in a way that often makes women not feel very good about the way they look. I know that I've felt that over the years, not feeling very good about the way I look, not feeling represented by women's media. And we're having these conversations, but I don't think women's media is by any means a perfect or 
sometimes very noble corner of media to work within. And then the same thing with the fashion industry. I think the kind of ills of the fashion industry are quite widely discussed, but, you know, it's everything from sustainability to, again, representation and diversity. So I'm curious as to how you navigate these positions, because the gentleman in many ways is slap bang at the heart of those two arenas. Well, I think when we succeed, I'm sure we don't always, it's because we've chosen great role models in the magazine and we don't try and, to use Agnes Varda's line, do them up like a stolen car. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was once part of an interview panel at Venice Film Festival where she told the hair and makeup that's what she didn't want. So that was quite a useful <laughs> plan when we finally did get to feature her in the magazine a couple of years later. It's how you do it, isn't it? And what your approach to representing people is. We went into this wanting to represent how people actually look and what they sound like and that to try and make it equal what they thought and what they said to how they appeared. So in independent publishing, there are very good examples of literary magazines or magazines that are stronger in the textual and then there's really visual magazines. But I think it's very rare to manage to reconcile the two because in the fashion genre, it means giving over a lot of pages that are meant to be about shopping to text. And that's kind of a difficult discussion to have, you know, with advertisers that are expecting a lot more coverage of their product, etc. So, you know, that was the kind of structural context that we were building. And then meanwhile, we were going to give the kind of women that we profile the opportunity and treatment to be represented in fashion if they wanted or not. Lots of women are presented in their own clothes and not made to feel that they look different. But to use that hackneyed phrase, wanted them to look like the best examples of themselves. If anything, the task is not to get too pulled towards the industry's agenda and try and keep recalibrating yourself after each issue back to the ideology that is that, that we're just interested in people and we want them to look confident and like they're active and doing something. Those are subtle things, but they can be surprisingly difficult to achieve. And I think that remains a sort of optimistic, politicised agenda with a small P. It's not party political, but I think that whilst we know that, as you've just touched on, equality and respect still isn't a given, that that continues to be an important task, whilst also representing all the other parts of those women's lives and it not being a kind of echo chamber of complaint because I think that does the women represented as a service too. We're trying to create an optimistic, confident environment, the sort of climate that you might have at your dinner table of girlfriends where you're assuring and saying, yeah, that looks great and yeah, that sounds like a good project. So you wear cufflinks, you know, that's the kind of conversation and atmosphere I want to be part of. So hence, I think it carries through into the kind of offering that a team like myself and Veronica Ditting and my colleagues on the editorial group would want to create or be likely to create. Does that answer your question? It does. And I was actually reflecting as you were saying that on the experience I had of being shot by the team, being photographed for the latest issue, because what you're saying really tallies because I think I went away afterwards. I mean, to be honest, I was slightly intimidated because, you know, it's this big magazine that I've always looked up to, but it's also a very high level magazine in terms of taste, in terms of profile, all of these things. And I wasn't entirely sure what the actual photo shoot would be like. And I just remember coming away from it and thinking, oh, that was so chilled, like unexpectedly chilled. Thank you for saying so. But that's the work. That's the art direction side of what we were talking about when it comes to building relationships with writers. To a large extent, 
Veronica does a lot of work to ensure that the climate on set is like that. And that's not just a sort of politics thing or a decency thing. We obviously want everybody to have a nice time on set, but that translates into the images. And a lot of the conversation, the reason we work with few image makers and well, is because a huge amount of investment is made in that relationship about them understanding what we don't want. That, you know, the stuff early no sex and the gentlewoman kind of um, <laughs> joke it is a joke. It's that idea about making sure that women have a sort of soft glamour and that it's not a passively cool climate and that, you know, we are interested in seeing the pores on people's faces and making people realise that women do look great at this age. You know, that's why I always have a tussle with, not you, but certain subjects that don't want us to print what their age is. It's just like, you know, it's a really important political message that you are 58 and a woman can look like this at 58. Of course you want to say that, you know, what your age is, because, my God, you don't you look brilliant? The fact that one of our most successful covers, obviously, was a woman at 85 in Angela Lansbury, you know. I remember witnessing it in sort of exactly what you're describing in microcosm quite early on. I was on the set of the third issue for cover shoot with Adele and her second album hadn't come out yet, so... You know, she was well known for that first one, but the big stratospheric kind of explosion hadn't quite happened yet. She was in the fitting room and didn't fit the dress. And I just remember thinking for myself that for me, I would have gone home at that moment. You know, it's just like, do not embarrass me. And I just remember coming out in her tights and pulling the dress down to her waist and saying, we could do a headshot. And I was like, oh my God, I love you. And I knew it was because Alistair McClellan's team and the stylist's team hadn't, made her feel like she was anything other than a worthy collaborator in this image making experience. And I knew that we couldn't have any other experience on set. So it takes a lot to guarantee that because, you know, you've got to make sure that people don't feel that the hair and makeup team are exchanging glances, etc. You know, and I've seen that happen on shoots before. You mentioned earlier the kind of industry's agenda and how you endeavour to resist that. Well, I don't mean I'm trying to bite the hand that feeds. Clearly, there's a lot of advertising arm. Magazine and those relationships are, you know, something I really enjoy, actually. And, you know, it's a large part of what I do. But I I just mean that the terms of engagement need to be respected and sort of maintained, I guess. Mm. No, totally. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about is how the gentleman, you know, as much as you can say, how you do work with advertisers and how you do navigate that line between keeping obviously you want to keep your tone and and your style and that editorial integrity but as a print publication my understanding from a commercial point of view is that advertisers are what tend to keep the lights on and I would just love to know what the ethos is that you have going into those advertiser relationships. Well I want to watch in starting at The Gentlewoman because of course there was a set of relationships already developed with Fantastic Man. It wasn't that they would be the same, actually. I think we probably presumed that they would be, and I think we didn't really realise how different it would be working in the women in the men's market. But it wasn't like I was walking in cold. They knew that it was a publication from the makers of dot, dot, dot. So already we had supporters, and for a launch publication, actually, it's a very decent proportion. I think we try and keep it between 25 and 30% advertising in an issue, 35, is it? But I think actually my experience, I'd worked on a website. um, I used to edit Show Studio for years and that had 
have been assiduous about not taking advertising. Nick Knight obviously had had a long-standing relationship with big fashion houses like Dior and so on, and didn't want a show studio to be a space that was in any way hampered by commercial relationships. So I'd sort of gone into fashion thinking that there was going to be this kind of nightmarish relationship that needed to be negotiated. So the surprise was really that that wasn't at all my experience once I started making the magazine, because the lesson has been not to underestimate the sophistication of the people that you're working with. So hand on heart, haven't really felt pressure to do anything outside the kind of language of the publication. Sure, there are discussions about, you know, was there enough support this time? You know, do you think you could do a little bit more this time? That is the job of an editor when they go out to do ad meetings, etc., just to kind of monitor that and discuss it. And of course, the advertising director's job is to negotiate the placement, the order in which all the advertising comes. I don't work on that specifically myself, but, you know, obviously I'm involved in it. There have been times when we've published something that's quite out there and I'm maybe expecting a conversation. (laughs) Like, for instance, I mentioned Angela Lansborough. I remember going to Fashion Week in Italy with that publication just on newsstands, expecting at the most commercial end of the industry in some Milanese showrooms for it to seem a bit irrelevant. And I remember walking into a big Italian brand's presentation at Fashion Week and they went, ah, la signora in jello. And it took me for a moment to work out what they were talking about. And that's the title for Murder, She Wrote in in Italian. Jallo as in, you know, yellow pulp fiction. And I just think, don't assume that we are the arbiters of sort of sophisticated good taste. Actually, the reason that most people are in fashion is they're very good at their jobs and they're very culturally attuned. Otherwise, they wouldn't keep them because these are very popular positions to be in sort of thing. So it is a big conversation and and things are politicised. But I think early on when we dispensed with the standard magazine structure of having a sea of shopping pages the minute you open the magazine is obviously a very different proposition. I think, you know, what the expectation is that you maintain a standard of photography for sure. And that's a lot of work for the creative director to keep those relationships going. And then on my part, to make sure that we've got the very best writing for these modest independent publishing budgets that we possibly can have. And that's why we spend so long in production. We make the magazine for a month, not, you know, a couple of weeks sort of thing. So as you will have experienced, those pieces get a lot of love and attention to make sure they really chime with each other and that they get the very best copy editing and they get proofed. Those are some of the kind of luxuries that have been squeezed out of newspaper publishing. And I imagine a lot of other independent publications don't choose to spend their resources in that way. But, you know, we're very dogged about that. And hopefully that means that if someone does give us our time, whether they're a writer or a photographer or a subject, that they have a portfolio piece that's really one of the best examples, you know, and was worthy of their attention. But that's my job to figure out. Definitely. You know, you've kind of talked about advertisers. The Gentleman has also done quite a few interesting, I guess, sort of brand collaborations or special projects. Mm -hmm. And I find those really intriguing. So I know recently you worked with Tekla, the Danish brand on those pyjamas, which I have a pair of and they're amazing. And, you know, there have been... (laughs) blankets with Beg and Co and all these sorts of little projects and I'm really interested in essentially why you do them is it a creative itch that needs to be scratched is it a commercial concern and how do you approach them how do these things come about you're talking about the kind of the pivot of 2020 21 to some extent of course advertising is always going to be the main revenue for an independent publication that costs as much as ours does to print and produce etc 
Some of it grew up with social media, I suppose, where the expectation of communication between these two biannual issues became greater. And a lot of our supporters wanted to work with us during that time and not just place a double page spread in the issue, but maybe we might do a project. And that grew with the development of the Gentlewoman Club and our desire to get involved with our readers and actually do events. So those became opportunities to collaborate with certain brands that maybe didn't have a huge advertising budget, but wanted to do something in the real world and communicate that through social media assets, etc. So that's been one model. And then, of course, you've got kind of frustrated designers in our team that want to make things. And, you know, when we get an opportunity, yeah, sure, work with Tekla on pyjamas. I was thrilled to do that. And I had this idea about an inside pocket that, you know, women being deprived the inside pocket and jackets and feeling that it'd be an amazing thing to have inside your pyjamas when you're on a flight or just that private pocket that stops you having to carry a handbag. Sometimes they're sort of almost editorial ideas expressed in the real, like we made a cocktail pick for your olive in a martini with um, Delfina Delatrez in order to work with her. Just those little gifts that express a desire to have something else beyond the magazine to buy. As I said, we're an absolutely tiny team. So these are little gifts to ourselves that happen now and then. But things like the blanket tend to be products that we make to mark or in service of an event. So we, the first one we did was with Paul Smith, where we did an event with Hauser and Vert out in Somerset and we did a bus trip with Paul Smith. Amazing. He was doing like a tour with the microphone at the end of the bus. And those kinds of visuals and that kind of intimacy it's quite sacred in a way. You know, who would have ever thought Sir Paul Smith wanted to spend an entire day with 50 of our readers that he never has to meet, let's be honest. And you know that those can be attended by very few of our readers, but they're such special moments. And when documented, obviously, they have a great deal of power over our social media. So, yeah, we're doing lots more of those. And obviously, we just can't wait for the lockdown to end because we've got such an evolved offering and I think we are the go-to place to do all those kinds of experiential things we've done ghost walk tours we've done dance parties done furniture collecting salons many many kind of abstruse and wonderful events and it gives me a lot of pleasure and it's just an opportunity to meet the readers and have like a two-minute conversation about who they think we should have and what they haven't enjoyed etc and it just confirms and sometimes interrogates your assumption about who your reader is. Mm. I hadn't thought of that. I know that you obviously don't approach these events or maybe you do as a kind of audience research, but I suppose... Oh, I do. You've been to some of them, I think, you know, where we do uh, signing. Magazine launches traditionally would be, you know, meet the editor and she probably, she is a she, would be somewhere in that shop at the back kind of with her cronies and, you know, you'd be in the kind of atmosphere of as if she was some kind of celebrity. But, you know, I really, from the start of us doing them, and I think we started with issue four in 2011, that would be, we said, right, we'll wrap the issue at the counter. So it means that people have to stand and talk to us for two minutes. It's not like I'm off having a glass of champagne somewhere, but I'll actually talk to every single person that walks through the door that wants to buy an issue. And is a kind of slightly more egalitarian experience and it doesn't try and set me up as some kind of Oz, like you said, where I'm genuinely saying, all right, where are you from? And oh, did you, what was your first issue? And, and I hear from them what ones they've enjoyed. And sometimes people will say, oh, you know, do you know who you should do? And I'll definitely take it down. And you kind of start to realise there's sort of trends and who people think we should do, etc. And it's really useful, I think. 
I'm just trying to think about what I would have liked as a voracious consumer of magazines and women's magazines and fashion magazines, but especially music magazines in my teens. What kind of event I would have wanted to go to and what would have been the dream experience and trying to set that up in a kind of modest way. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've felt I've been to a few club events and used the word egalitarian. I was going to say democratic. They always feel very democratic. And I guess your name's picked out of a hat and you end up at these events, but it doesn't feel intimidating and you know you get to meet I think when you engage with a piece of culture which is how I would describe the magazine it's nice to have different touch points not to sound too much like a kind of advertising like jargon but to have different touch points with which you can sort of engage with the brand I mean is there the possibility of the gentleman like launching its own branded line of products or anything like that I definitely buy them there is a couple of things coming down the line let's just say But just to come back to your point about the sort of experience of meeting people there, I think we noticed that when we first did the running club and we started to notice that people were turning up on their own. And our experience of fashion parties was generally you went in and, you know, Days and Confused would be in one corner, ID would be in the other corner, you know, and people would come in packs and they wouldn't really mix and then they'd get their photo (laughs) taken and then they'd go. And the fact that our readers started to turn up on their own and they'd introduce themselves to each other. And I remember one person I was running with that had said that they'd just come to London and they had read the magazine for a long time. And they thought if they came to our events, they might meet people that were a bit like them. And I just, you know, obviously talking to the editor. Yeah, of course. I I thought, wow, that's exactly what I'd like it to be. And I just think it's so chic when you, I think we even did a piece, did we not, about people introducing themselves in the restaurant or getting up from the table at the end of the night and saying goodnight to the room. I think that's a line in one of our pieces, our Modern Manners essays. And I I just love those kind of chic little flourishes and the fact that people could feel confident enough to introduce themselves in what, as you say, could be quite an intimidating environment in the field, a fashion party, let's say, is a mark of hopefully the fact that the magazine is all about confidence, isn't it? It's about confidence in your taste. It's confidence in your bad taste. It's about the little details that are personal to you, not feeling cowed by an industry and choosing what you want and knowing you look great in it and that your accomplishments are much more important than your appearance. Or maybe your appearance is your accomplishment. But, you know, just that sense of acceptance and, like, it's it's all right, maybe is all I ever wanted to be told. So hopefully that's what the magazine says. Mm, Definitely. I've always felt like the magazine really celebrates individuality. Well, anyway, I think that might be all we have time for today. It's been so brilliant getting an insight into the magazine and more. Thanks for your question. No, absolutely. It's been really, really brilliant to chat. So thank you so much for joining me, Penny. My pleasure. I hope you enjoy the next issue. And that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another fantastic guest. So do make sure you're subscribed wherever you get your podcasts. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then I think you'll really enjoy my next book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is a blend of memoir and cultural commentary all about, you guessed it, money, and which you can pre-order now using the link in my show notes. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at OtegaUagba. That's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And please do leave a positive review or rating for the podcast if you're so inclined, as it really does help give the show a boost. Thank you once again to our episode sponsor, Aurelia Skincare. Don't forget, you can get 20% off all the products on their website, even the ones that are already discounted, by using the code IDC20 at www.aureliaskincare.com. Do be sure to check them out.